Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I am Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Wednesday, June 2nd, 2021. EconView, based in Chicago, is the home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical economic issues worldwide. If you'd like to subscribe to our free monthly newsletter, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Patreon and Substack. This podcast is the final segment in a three-part series on the future of innovation in the post-COVID world. Last week, we welcomed Sheila Warren, head of blockchain for the World Economic Forum, and Dan Bresnitz, professor of innovation at University of Toronto. You can find all three podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. My guest today is Winston Ma, speaking to us from New York. He's an investment and legal professional, author, and adjunct professor at NYU, focusing on technology and the digital economy. Most recently, for 10 years, he was managing director and head of North America office for CIC, China Investment Corporation, China's sovereign wealth fund. Previously, he worked at Barclays Capital and J.P. Morgan Investment Banking. He is one of a small number of native Chinese who have worked as an investment professional and a practicing capital markets attorney in both the U.S. and China. Mr. Ma is a prolific writer, the author of several books, including The Hunt for Unicorns, How Sovereign Funds Are Reshaping Investment in the Digital Economy in 2020. His new book we are discussing today Digital War, How China's Tech Power Shapes the Future of AI, Blockchain, and Cyberspace, was just published. Winston and I met moderating a panel when I was moderating a panel hosted by the CFA Society of New York a couple of months ago on China Tech. Thank you, Winston, for joining me again today. Thank you, Lyric. Great to be here with you. Welcome to the Hale Report. Um, basically, I can see in order to keep up with the pace of change in Chinese tech, you've had to write a new book every year. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I learned a new word, pentalogy. You know, that means five, five book series. You know, trilogy is for three books. Uh, but I feel like uh, as more technology coming into play and more uh, governance issues emerge relating to the digital economy, you know, I may have to write more books for that series. Maybe you're going to have to speed it up every six months. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of work for you. But, uh, you know, I've been following Chinese technology for quite some time, actually for decades, but I learned a lot uh, reading the digital war. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I was intrigued that your foreword was written by Anthony Scaramucci, yes. a recent blockchain con convert. So are you working together with him or how did, you, how did you get to know him? I'm curious. Oh, sure. You know, Anthony and I knew each other many years ago uh, uh, in the uh, Davos context. You know, the mm -hmm. World Economic Forum uh, organizes very uh, many uh, leading topics, right, for industry experts to work on, to come up with a white paper um, and to provide, you know, policy suggestions, so on and so forth. And uh, uh, Anthony and I were on the uh, on this one particular global agenda council for private capital. You know that's how we first met when he was uh, uh, running Skybridge in a traditional hedge fund context. And uh, to your point, 
right last the seven months, he became a new crypto manager. And, uh, you know, we, we would really find uh, uh, our interests overlap again. Well, you know, I generally ask my my guests how they first became involved in the subject that they later devoted their life to. Um, I understand that you began as an engineer and a software devo- right. developer in Shanghai in the 1990s. And what a difference between that time and today. In those early days, what attracted you to that space? Oh, great question. Uh- my undergrad major, you know, as you referred to, right, uh, was at Fudan University in Shanghai, China. Um, it, it was about electronic materials, semiconductor physics, um, and uh, uh, silicon devices. And during the same time, I also took uh, software programming classes. Uh, I even sat in a national exam for one day to be a certified software programmer at that time. Uh, now, what was interesting was uh, that that was the time China and U.S. had the last digital war relating to copyright protection of software. Uh, and at that time, you know, I, I thought I would become the first gener- generation IP lawyer in China. Uh, so I went to Fudan University Law School for graduate studies. You know, I, I got to the uh, uh, China Bar Admission and uh, 1997, you know, I graduated, uh, got the scholarship from NYU Law School. Uh, uh, so I got the chance to come to the States to study uh, uh, for Master of Law in the U.S. You know, th- then I passed the bar uh, in New York, become a, a Wall Street lawyer, then banker, uh, which all led to uh, my last 10 years with CIC, China's Sovereign Wealth Fund. You know, so it, it has been an interesting journey, I have to say. Well, you really span these three different um, areas, finance, technology, regulation, right? Um, which are all necessary to create the environment for innovation. How do you see that three-legged stool being different in China? For, because you have a bird's eye view of this. How do you see that being different in China than in the U- U.S.? A big question. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. In, very interesting question. So, so first, you know, let's talk about this uh, this, this three leg stool, right? And I think you know th- this is increasingly becoming the the, uh, the the setup for innovation, especially for fintech. But I think it's it's across the board. You know, uh, for for example, if, if today, right, if you if, let's say Google wants to come up with a strategic meeting, you know, they, they cannot have the strategic discussion without all three parts participating. You know, obviously, you need the technology uh, uh, talents, uh, and then uh, you need the capital markets, right? But uh, data privacy and antitrust regulations and, and and more are coming to the picture. So you cannot really have a strategic discussion without have all three parts together. And and this is especially true for the fintech area. You know, for example, the the blockchain and the crypto economics that we're we are talking about today, right? Uh, because for, for, for the for fintech, uh, we have to recognize that the, the financial system is always a heavy regulated area, right? And, and also uh, finance is, the fintech typically deals with consumer transactions. And, and for, for, for the consumers, right, the financial 
imprecation to them are huge, are huge. So that, so that leads to like even more regulations, right? Uh, right? So therefore, like in order to think about fintech, crypto economics, you definitely have to uh, uh, put those issues in, in, in this context of uh, a three-leg stool, technology, finance, and regulation. Right. So, you know, related to that, um, on the investment side, you spent, as you said, a decade at CIC. Um, how is China's sovereign wealth fund, I'm curious, different mm-hmm. than, say, Temasek or other sovereign wealth funds? How does it operate? What is the size? Mm-hmm. Um, the United States doesn't really have a sovereign wealth fund. I guess we just have the U.S. dollar. But, exactly. It's your uh-huh. the question, and you, you, mm-hmm. you provide the answer, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because, because uh, for, for CIC, you know, it, it, it manages a portion of the country's foreign reserve. Right, uh, and China has about three trillion foreign reserve, and for CIC, it's it's about one trillion dollar size sovereign wealth fund. So it manages a portion of the foreign reserve, right? And, and the central bank of China manages uh, the the lion's share of the foreign reserve. Now, uh, when you look at the CIC and the source of capital, which is the foreign reserve of the country, you know this represents uh, the the surplus country in global trade to manage the foreign reserve, uh, trying to preserve the value uh, and increase the value of the foreign reserve holdings of the country, right? And, and by contrast, you know, U.S. is like the deficit country uh, in the global trade. So to, to your point, right, it's hard to imagine the deficit country can have a sovereign wealth fund because we're talking about wealth here. Right, <laughs> not debt. <laughs> Not dead. Uh, no, we have an extraordinary privilege, I guess, in yeah. the U.S. But in the U.S., you know, interesting, Alaska has a sovereign wealth fund you know, because they have the oil revenue. So, so Alaska permanent fund actually is more like CIC, you know, a, a, a sovereign wealth fund managing the wealth of the state. Right. That's interesting. I didn't know mm. that. Yeah. So diving into the topic of the title of your new book, um, what does a digital war between the, and I'm assuming this is between the U.S. and China primarily, what does a digital war between um, China and the U.S. mean? And are we at war or are we just competitors? And is decoupling as a result of this inevitable or is it even possible? Right. You know, the book title, The Digital War, obviously is designed for marketing, right? Uh, but it has some truth to it. Uh, you know, tech competition is a big part of it, but because technology is at the center of geopolitics today, um, tech competition inevitably leads to more and more tensions between the two superpowers, right? So that's why uh, we have the term, the digital war. But, you know, in my mind, there's always this picture of China, U.S. Uh, facing off uh, literally. You know, the, the, the picture started 2017. You know, the, uh, in 2017, China hosted the historical gold chess match between the best human player and the AI algorithm designed by the DeepMind lab of Google. You know, uh, Without too much suspense, you know, the AI algorithm from Google 
beat the best human player three to zero, right? Uh, but if you look at that picture, right, you know, it, it was full of metaphor. You know, it's, it's like science versus tradition, you know, uh, it, or you can say it's a human versus machine, right? Uh, but you can also say it's China versus the U.S., right? Uh, because it's the Google AI beat best human player in China. Now, maybe it was a coincidence, but within several months of that historical match in the summer of 2017, China came up with an AI development plan for the nation. It called China to become the unquestionable AI leadership in the world by 2030. You know, very, very few, can, you know, and then lots of countries talk about AI development, but very few, you know, like China would develop a concrete plan and then put national resources into it. Right. So, so in that kind of, that kind of context, you know, it is tech competition and it is also a digital war. So that game was really a wake-up call for China. Oh, precisely, precisely. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to many Chinese internet uh, industry companies, uh, that was a transition time. You know, before that, you know, most of the internet platforms like Alibaba, Tencent, you know, they focused on the spread of mobile phones, mobile payment, and mobile transaction traffic. Right. That, that, that was sort of before that 2017 game. You know, after that, uh, all the companies focused on data first, meaning data driven new digital technologies like AI, like a blockchain, like a cloud. Right. So that's why today we, we, if we look at Alibaba, you know, cloud business is, is, is the uh, rapid growth sector for the company. And when you look at the Tencent, it also has a special management committee to focus on break technology breakthroughs. You know, in in the time of internet companies, that was not their focus. Yeah, I think um, even though um, we um, are working to replace humans, there's still something about human contact. We're still social beings. Right. right. And, you know, China today is very physically isolated from the rest of the world, even though there's just been, I guess, one death from COVID in China in the last 13 months. And vaccinations mm-hmm. are the program. It's 20 million people, I think, a day are getting vaccinated. But do you think that this period of lack of face to face contact with people um, and at the same time, there's an increased level of friction between our two countries, do you think that will have an effect, a long-term effect on cross-border partnerships? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, My fear, yeah. Yeah, you know, even, mm-hmm. like, even before the pandemic, right, last couple of years, we have already seen rising cross-border investment regulations you know, that, that, that are slowing down cross-border investments, especially in technology-related sectors. Right, because of the national security review, uh, because of uh, the, the the tensions between U.S. China uh, policies, so on and so forth. Now, uh, because there's a lack of travel, right? You know, there's a lack of you know interactions uh, between human beings, and and this put even less uh, 
you know, th- this will lead to further decrease of the trust between the two countries and the two peoples. Right. Even journalists now, of course, they've been they've moved to other to Taiwan and Singapore and so forth. So there's even a lack of reporting, um, let alone the face to face. So uh, it, it's something that really concerns me. It feels like we're going back to a previous era before um, our warm relationship. Uh, I, and, I'm so glad you focus on this topic because uh, uh, in my case, right, my last two decades career uh, is has always been about uh, global connectivities and synergies. Right. Right. You know, I was educated both in China and the U.S. You know, I was a lawyer both in China and the U.S. Uh, then, you know, before I worked at the CIC, China's investment fund, I got the training from the Wall Street, right? Uh, so, so that was all great stories about connectivities and the synergies. <laughs> so, right. so if we, so, so if we, if we cannot continue that dialogue, you know, I, I think that the, the, you know, a lot of value will be, will be lost. But, but, you know, today we're still talking, right? You and me. And, uh, from the capital markets, you know, interesting enough, uh, yet to date, inc- actually including 2020, despite of all the trade war, digital war, everything war, uh, uh, Chinese, Chinese companies are coming to US for IPO at a record pace. So it seems like, you know, the capital flow and uh, business transactions between the two markets are still very strong. Yeah, I think that Chinese investment in the US uh, surpassed US investment in China for the first time. In, uh, this past year, yeah, and there, I think maybe obvious, uh, obviously a lot of of reasons that, and I for right. that, and I agree with you, even mm-hmm. prior to COVID, with five yeah. G and Huawei tensions exactly. had already begun, and, but now I think post COVID, um, there's a concern, and I I worry about this too that um, it's changed perceptions about China. That's right. And, That's right. Yeah. It, it's a big worry. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and on the one hand, in uh, you, you mentioned in your book the digital Silk Road and yes. the development of that. But in then in developing countries, on the other hand, there's less engagement with China at the same time as there's more engagement um, in, um, in other countries, developing mm-hmm. countries. So how do you think that will develop over time? Yeah, is that a know, permanent the, fork in the road? Is I guess my question. Exactly, exactly. You know, like before the pandemic, you know, China came up with the Belt and Road Initiative, right, to increase more global connectivities in the physical, a physical trade a trade context. And and the several years after that, you know, China added the digital dimension, you know, the digital Silk Road uh, to cover. The, the connectivity in the cyberspace and, and across border uh, digital service trades, right? Um, and, and as a result, you know, we, 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 we have seen, you know, lots of uh, China uh, capital driven uh, digital infrastructure projects in the emerging markets. Uh, for example, 5G expansion, you know, for example, uh, cross border e-commerce. And then lately we're talking about uh, blockchain network. Right. Things, things like a BSN, right? Blockchain service network. You know, th- these are like the, 
the, the infrastructure, the Silk Road in the cyberspace. Um, now, now, because of pandemic, uh, you sort of uh, see mixed uh, results, you know, mixed results. You know, on one side, uh, obviously, because of lack of travel, lack of uh, human interactions, you know, lots of uh, uh, infrastructure projects have to be slowed down. Right. Uh, but at the same time, you know, because of the pandemic, you know, lots of places, uh, in, in many places, uh, almost all the activities are going online and the existing, uh, the, the existing ICT infrastructure is not sufficient. And now the, for, for that, you know, 5G network, uh, with its high speed and a low latency, is expected to be the solution for the for the future communication infrastructure. So so there's more demand uh, for 5G infrastructure because of the pandemic. Uh, so so I think you you will see mixed results uh, for for China's uh, digital Silk Road projects in the emerging markets. You know some will be slowed down. You know some actually are being accelerated because of the uh, rising demand for data and uh, information service because of the pandemic. Right. Now, one of the um, battlefields um, in the yeah. digital war is, of course, standards. Whenever you have technology, it, yes. it requires standards. Um, uh, my guest, Dan Bresnitz, uh, raised an interesting point last week. He said that China won the yep. standards game fair and square. <laughs> and <laughs> he questioned because of its participation in right. international organizations and so forth. And, but he questioned whether or not one standard is truly optimal for the world. What do you think for innovation? And maybe it's okay if we have two or three standards. What's your opinion on, on his comment? It's an interesting comment because uh, if we put 5G for, uh, aside for a moment, right? If you look at the 4G, you know, it also started with a few standards and then, you know, the standards kind of converge. Um, you know, during the 4G era, uh, Chinese companies mostly, uh, uh, man, mo mostly had a catch up game. You know, China came from behind and then sort of, uh, successfully, uh, had a catch up, you know, or, or uh, China developed the 4G network in China. Um, the, the, the smartphones got distributed, you know, uh, broadly to nearly 1 billion users, um, mostly from Chinese local brands, right? So, so it was most of a, a catch up game, uh, because when Xiaomi came up with its phone, first phone, uh, Apple or Apple was already, uh, iPhone 4. That's I right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, now, What's interesting about 5G, now we talk about standards, right? Well, in, right. In, in, the, in the time of 5G, uh, all the tech companies, you know, in China and the U.S. are almost starting at the same starting line. Uh, and it, actually, China has more national champions than the U.S., right? Um, because otherwise, the U.S. would not talk about uh, uh, potentially taking a stake in the European 5G leading players, uh, Ericsson and Nokia. Uh, um, so, so this is sort of the, uh, the, the situation here. The situation is China and the US are starting from the same starting point for 5G. Um, 
and it, and and the companies like Huawei has already done a lot of work uh, in the emerging markets in particular, and, and actually Europe as well, uh, but especially in the emerging markets, right? Uh, so when you look look out of China and the U.S., uh, China definitely has more reach uh, in the emerging markets. You know that's where the next billion users are, right? So, so, so that's really a competition for Chinese and the U.S. tech companies, and as and the next uh, at the next level, it is also naturally become a competition for the standards, uh, because uh, when Chinese companies are helping building up the uh, uh, digital infrastructure, and also China is engaging the emerging markets for cross-border e-commerce, then essentially China is naturally setting up uh, the infrastructure standards as well as transactional standards be- be- between China and the emerging markets. You, you mentioned the IPOs. I mean, certainly the stories of companies 10 years ago or 20 years ago, nobody had ever heard of in China who are right. now becoming major global players. It's, it's kind of astounding to me that you can't yeah. really name one similar company in Europe, for example. Correct, correct. And, you know, why that is. So I'm curious, what are some of the companies along the way that you invested in? Are there companies that you wish you had invested in, you know, that you didn't think would be successful? And where are the new unicorns in China? Where are the new unicorns in China? Oh, great, great question. Um, I, I, th- I think China is now leading the mobile business models. Um, so, so for example, TikTok in in, in the U.S. right ha, has exceeded uh, a, in the similar products from Facebook, and and in China, you know, uh, uh, there's another version, uh, kind of competitor of TikTok in China called Kuaishou, like a quick hand. You know, several months ago, it it had its IPO in Hong Kong, uh, five billion IPO, you know, the largest. Uh, uh, Tech IPO since Uber, so on and so forth, and it, it was also a short video uh, platform like TikTok. Uh, what's interesting about companies like TikTok, QuickHand, is that uh, comparing to the, the the U.S. counterparts, you know, th- these Chinese uh, these Chinese companies uh, do a better job integrating mobile entertainment, e-commerce. And social functions in one place, right? Uh, in, in one place. So, so over there, you, you, you will see people, you know, post the video contents, uh, becoming a, a KOL, and then they do live broadcasting to sell branded goods. And there's, and the mobile payment and the e-commerce sites are integrated so that they can do it, uh, all, all within at one platform. Right. Uh, but here, like you, you don't see something similar, like not Instagram. Instagram is not uh, clearly connected to e-commerce and, and it's not Facebook. Right. Facebook does not have its own mobile payment. Uh, so yet. So, <laughs> yeah, they'll yeah. have DM maybe down the road. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So, so these are interesting examples that uh, that the U.S. market are now copying uh, from Chinese innovations, right? In, in terms of business models. Now, of course, you know, the U.S. is still leading 
in many fundamental researches. Uh, and, and, you know, for example, uh, semiconductors, right? Uh, and even like AI algorithms, so on and so forth. And those, those areas, you know, China still has a long way to catch up. And of course, um, Facebook, Google, Twitter mm. have never operated um, in the Chinese market. And do yes. you think how somehow that it would be good for innovation to let them in? Um, LinkedIn is doing a, a good, it seems they're, they have a good business in China, so they're able That's to right. operate. Um, so, um, yeah. would no, you, no, no. would you think it would be good for competition to allow them in? Totally, totally. Now, I, I think LinkedIn is, is a good example of a U.S. company, uh, adapting itself to the China market. You know, another example would be Microsoft, you know, despite all the, uh, all the data regulations, you know, Microsoft remains in the market and is still expanding its cloud business in China. Uh, but, but when we talk about the, the consumer tech business, I, I think absolutely yes. Like if the China, if the U.S. companies have more presence uh, in China, you know, they can actually get 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 lots of new ideas, you know, from China, which is a super competitive market. Right. Yeah. yeah. And there are companies I read about in your book, and yeah. not all were successful, um, like mm -hmm. E-Umbrella, which basically was a company that was set up to donate 300,000 umbrellas, <laughs> to, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> from what I can tell, because their yeah. sharing model just did not work. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But you, you, you have seen some ex successful examples, right? Like uh, Starbucks, you know, uh, uh, Starbucks uh, had its traditional business model in the U.S. and then in China, uh, it was slow to adapt to China's mobile only and the kind of food delivery type of uh, 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 thinking, you know. But it gradually, you know, uh, Starbucks expanded its business model to cover those, you know, which, which makes it, you know, increasingly innovative, right? As, so, so number one, uh, external mobile payment, right? In addition to Starbucks own kind of royalty program, uh, uh, Starbucks in China accepted, uh, uh, Tencent and Alibaba's mobile payments, right? Which, which makes it, uh, uh much more, uh, uh, going mobile versus just physical. And another example is Chinese people don't want to wait and get coffee, right? Instead, they, they want coffee to be delivered. And that's something Starbucks never did, but in the China market, they tested. And then they realized actually during the, if they can deliver coffee, they can probably deliver something else. Right. So, so they, they also incorporated e-commerce to, uh, to the Starbucks China app so that people can not only order a, a coffee, but also, uh, the Starbucks mug and even other related goods. Right. Uh, so, so these are, uh, these are very interesting examples of a traditional U.S. brand can incorporate more Chinese market innovation into its ec ecosystem. You talk about O2O. Is this right. an example of online to offline? Exactly. Where you have a fit, that's, that might be a good example of that. It yeah. is, it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, also there's some other companies. This, um, there's a company that provides fiction in serialized form that's evidently exactly. enormous, uh, Yue Wen. Yeah, and, and I thought, why don't we have something like that here? Exactly. I wonder if it would, it, it, it could prove popular. 
sort of and, and bring you know forward all kinds of new authors of fiction. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The, you know, it, it's a good example of mobile payments and the mobile devices create in create new uh, content creation uh, channels and and at the same time creating new viewers. You know, uh, for for these online novels, uh, the, the the readers are not the typical book readers. And the authors are not the typical fiction writers, uh, uh, right? You know, the, the just average person, you know, can start a book and then the readers will quickly give you the feedback, right? Either they keep paying you a cent a day to, to read your <laughs> <laughs> sequel or, you know, you're just out of there, right? Uh, so, so the mobile payment is a, is a, is a very interesting, uh, vehicle for, uh, new business models based on frequent but a small amount of payments. Micropayments, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, no, I think it, it's uh, a, a pretty fascinating idea. Peer to peer fiction is really what it is. <laughs> exactly. It seems exactly. to me. Mm-hmm. And it's fair, right? You know, people, right. if people like it, they pay you. <laughs> so, you know, all of these things bring to the fore the idea of privacy. The, mm-hmm. this, the big data in China, there's no other place that has as much data. I even wonder how much of it can possibly be synthesized and stored and used over time. I think that right. there might be some physical constraints on that. But, you know, uh, uh, maybe, um, do you believe that that big data helped China to contain COVID and is continuing to protect China? And how do, how is privacy viewed in China? I mean... In some ways, I feel there isn't any privacy in China, um, in a social sociological sense. That yeah. how do you, yeah? What's your reaction to those cultural differences that we have, and how Definitely. do they affect technology? Definitely, you know, huge, huge, huge question, you know, for 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 China, you know, a, a country of big data, right? You know, here you have nearly one billion users. And they are integrated by the same language, same culture, and the same mobile payment uh, in the digital economy. So every day, there's a tremendous amount of data uh, uh, accumulated on the internet platforms. But at, its, at the same time, they are also very well organized, right? Because it, it, it's, in, it, 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 it's integrated by the same language and the culture. So, uh, so, th- so that's a huge amount of value uh, for China's uh, digital economy. You know, lots of things are coming out of that. And so, for example, facial recognition, right? You know, the Chinese uh, uh, AI startups mostly started with facial recognition uh, and then they go into, go into other directions. Uh, so, so here it's a, it's a very good example of China leveraging its data resources to develop new tech startups. Right. But, but at the same time, you know, when you talk about facial recognition, you know, huge, huge amount of uh, 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 personal privacy issue debate there. Right. Yeah. You know, I was interested to, of course, China is at the forefront of mm-hmm. creating a central bank digital currency, the ECNY. Right. And reading through the different documents um, that were issued, um, I was very interested to read from the PBOC that they were concerned about the privacy of the users. Beca- and I wonder if that's because they worry about the data being in 
in private hands rather than in government hands. How do you how do you see the development of this? And could a central bank digital currency uh, accelerate further China's technological edge? Yes, you know, th- you know, this particular topic, you know, started actually during the pandemic. Uh, that's because during the pandemic, some of the government actions are taken through the help of private platforms, right? Like because everyone's using WeChat for messaging and, every, and, and nearly 1 billion people are using mobile payments, right? For purchasing everything. Um, so some of the uh, uh, pandemic related actions, you know, like uh, uh, tracking people's location, you know, uh, tracking uh, people's uh, traveling, tra- traveling activities, right? I, and, and their, their, their payment activities, right, are, are done uh, with the help of the private uh, platforms. You know, it, it was very helpful at the worst time of the pandemic, right? But when things got more natural, more normalized, and people starting worry whether these pri- private platforms would uh, uh, would abuse the, the the amount of data they they collect during that process, right? Uh, now, when you push this forward, right? If you worry about now, then you should worry about the future. Then you know if there's a one one particular one big platform, the central bank, through the use usage of digital currency, can track everyone's every activity right that, that, that that's even more concentrated than like, let's say the mobile payment of tencent or, or or the or or the alibaba's e-commerce site right there's security issues there because that extreme mm-hmm. centralization creates a very nice attack surface mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right um yes. decentralization also and and um you know having replication of different services serves a security I think, um, purpose yes. as well. Yeah. Yes. No, I, I think to your point, like it, it's even, it's really hard to imagine the, the amount of big data, uh, this, you know, the, this, this digital currency can lead to, right. And, and much less we understand what does that mean? You know, so, so it's a still like at the, at the beginning of, of this debate, you know, at this moment, uh, the most of the focus is, is on the, uh, big tech platforms. Yeah, because these are owned by the private companies, um, and, and they use the data to cross-sell many different things to the users, right? So, and sometimes to the disadvantage of the users, you know, so there's a term big data killing, you know, which is the synonym, synonym of price discrimination based on big data, based on the understanding of individual consumers, right? right. Uh, yeah. So, so for the, so for the average users today, you know, their main concern is, is to the big, big tech platforms because th- those guys are collecting, uh, their everyday transactions, uh, data. And, and um, based on those data, the, the, the platforms can take advantage, uh, of the users. So to go to the opposite end of this completely decentralized finance, for yes. example, would, um, you know, is it, that's another example. It's Bitcoin week this week in Miami. And, yes. Right um, now. Right now. And recently there was a fall, albeit Bitcoin had already this year 
increased by more than 300% even after the fall. But there was a fall in the price, and uh, many people first ascribed that to Elon Musk, but then Mm -hmm. later changed their mind. And they said it's become because of restrictions that are upcoming in in China itself against Bitcoin mining. So here, again, we are linked, um, even with this very new technology that began in the United States, we think. Yes. So how, you know, how do we go forward from there? Is, is this something that's just regional, these new regulations? Or in a place like Xinjiang, will this just be too lucrative, the mining be too mm-hmm. lucrative for local officials to really effectively shut the, down? The implication is global. Like, mm-hmm. you know, exactly. That, that, right? That's, that's because China is such a big player in the crypto world. Uh, in various aspects, right? So, so, so n- number one, uh, China is the, the biggest uh, mining equipment manufacturing site. Bitmain you know? and all of Canaan right. and all of that, right? Right. Like, a, you know, the mo- mo- most of the uh, manufacturing equipment are manufactured by several leading uh, Chinese companies. And, uh, and uh, secondly, China represents more than half of the global hash rate, you know, the mining power, right? Uh, that, that's because uh, uh, there are lots of mining sites, uh, mining pools in China that take advantage of the cheap, la- cheap energy in some remote parts of China, you know, like Xinjiang, you mentioned, like uh, Inner Mongolia or, or like a south, southwest provinces like a Sichuan, uh, uh, Yunnan, th- those places. You know, uh, and and the third aspect is China has a huge trading market for crypto, right? E- even though China prohibits uh, uh, crypto exchanges in China since 2017, you know, lots of exchanges have have been uh, uh, registered overseas, uh, but still providing trading services to the Chinese onshore investors. So there's a big market in China, uh, lots of liquidity. Uh, uh, to the crypto trading globally, right? So, so when China says it will crack down crypto mining and trading, you know, essentially, you know, uh, we're, we're talking about the, the, the biggest part of the global crypto world is under a regulatory crackdown. Right. Um, although some people say more re- regulation um, is good or uh, that, um, some kind of emigration from China of all of these services right. would create in the lo- even though it creates short-term turbulence for sure, yes. that the miners will move to other parts of Eurasia to Kazakhstan or other places. Definitely. And yeah. I, I, I noticed that argument. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I don't know if that argument is, you know, correct or not. Yeah. But, you know, I, I heard about this argument saying uh, China's crackdown may may lead to more crypto mining rigs and uh, uh, hash rate uh, to migrate to overseas markets, which may lead to a more decentralized blockchain network, right? Because China used to control more than half of the global hash rate. Now, now here, uh, I, I think uh, it's still too early to predict the migration of Chinese miners. Uh, because it's, it's a complicated process, right? You know, like you need to 
make the sh- make equipment shipping in the middle of a pandemic, and, and then you have to move to a new market, uh, deal with new partners, uh, deal with the um, new energy supply, which may or may not be stable, uh, and uh, you have you may have new compliance costs, right? You know, moving away from China means you have to deal with new jurisdictions and the possible new regulations in this new country. Uh, so I, I think only the biggest ones uh, can really make this exodus smoothly. Yeah? Uh, for the for the medium, small mining players, you know, uh, this is just too costly for them to to do it right away. You know, it, it's not as easy as buying a summer house. Right. So it could lead to some kind of washout in that's right. That's yeah, right. In actually, the industry. Like, mm-hmm. Actually, literally in the second half of May, uh, there has been a a decrease in the global hash rate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So. So that means it, some mining capacities are either lost or or shut down. Right, and I think the ASIC manuf- manufacturers have gone from. Um, having most of their product used in China in a single year like Canaan. I think it was 4% a year ago to now like over 80% of what they manufacture or 90% maybe is now for export. That's right. So that has switched too. So I don't think that's illegal to manufacture ASICs and send them overseas yet. You know, as a former lawyer, I say it's a a very complex legal issue. and And I think... In connection with the crackdown of the trading and the mining, uh, the, the government probably going to come up with some uh, uh, more concrete ideas about the chips. Mm, right. Mm. That because uh, chips, as we know, make the world go round. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, because we're talking about a global chip shortage anyway. Anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And and now uh, uh, when when you have most of the uh, mining rigs exported to overseas. Uh, essentially, you're talking about exporting chips, right, to that's right to, to foreign markets. Right. So you write in your book that if, however, that if blockchain is mainstream anywhere, it's mainstream in China. So you know that's that's interesting because, as you know, public blockchain is is yes. fueled by Bitcoin, but. Um, and you bring an example of one uh, company that actually um, finances receivables for small and right. medium-sized enterprises. Exactly. That's, that seems, that kind of decentralized finance that must bypass banks, I'm assuming then, that yep. seems to be something that could spawn huge innovation in right. small and medium-sized firms in China. Exactly. You know, it's a, it's a big trend in China. So, so first of all, right, you know, we, we, we should explain this bifurcation of blockchain and a crypto in yes. China. Thank right? you. You know, crypto trading is prohibited, but uh, blockchain technology is, is, is widely applauded, right? Uh, in, in 2019, President Xi made the uh, announcement that blockchain is a critical technology, you know, calling Chinese industrial players to catch the opportunity. You know, that, that marked the first major economy leader to endorse blockchain. You know, the, the, the widely hyped, uh, but uh, not fully proved the technology, right? By contrast, you know, Western leadership, um, leadership figures are much more conservative, right? And I've never seen 
a, a, a major Western leadership uh, figure you no. know, publicly <laughs> endorsed the blockchain. That's right. Uh, right. So, so that's why uh, this, that's why in China, despite of the regulations on crypto, you, you, you can find a super active innovation ecosystem around blockchain applications, meaning using blockchain technologies for real econo- real economy applications, right? Such as supply chain financing, you know, such such as the tracing of the, uh, the 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 journey of of, of food. Right. Uh, food safety, uh, food which safety, is very like, important uh, in China. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and, 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 and also, you know, like uh, uh, blockchain applications in the government functions, right? Like, a, like at the court, you know, at the registration office, right? Blockchain applications are being used, you know, for better record keeping, you know? Uh, so in, in China, you know, blockchain uh, applications are Mostly connected to the, to the real economic sectors. You know, that's a very big difference, you know, from other, other worlds, right? You know, for example, in the U.S., every day we see, uh, uh, lots of reports on the Bitcoin prices, uh, uh, volatilities, but very rarely I see U.S. news report on blockchain technologies and, and blockchain technologies are used in some real industrial sectors. Right, because those are, so what you're talking about are really private blockchains, even if they are run by governments. Uh, Is that uh, right? Or are utilizing the Bitcoin blockchain? No, I think you're you're, you're mostly right. You know, these are not a public chain. You know, these are most most of the time like alliance chains, you know, among business players, right? You know, like the, for example, supply chain financing, right? Uh, you, you know, using blockchain, uh, um, supply chain finance can, 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 uh, uh trans, transmit data more efficiently among the, uh, among the players on the, uh, on, on the, uh, on the supply chain, right? From the center enterprise to the immediate suppliers and, and all the way to the kind of far end suppliers of, of the, of the chain, uh, such that even the small players on the chain can get uh, uh, better financing terms, right, from, from the banks. Uh, and, it, and when you look at it, that kind of example, you know, it definitely it's not a public chain, right? And it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's more like a business alliance chain, that, that, right? So, 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 so it, it's somewhat decentralized. Some something kind of in the some somewhere in the it's middle. It's a hybrid, really. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's kind of a hybrid. You know, um, one one subject I've studied quite a bit in China is healthcare, mm-hmm. which is right. an enormous challenge. And right. in fact, China's healthcare system affects, as we've seen, the entire world. Exactly. Um, how could te- what kind of innovations are going on today in healthcare? Maybe involving blockchain or not. What do you see, especially since China's aging population right. is an enormous issue? How could technology serve older people generally who are not early adopters of any technology? How could that gap be yeah, bridged? You know, the, the, the blockchain is, it, it has started being used uh, in, in the healthcare system. You know, mm. n- n- number one is healthcare insurance claims. You know, oh, actually, mm-hmm. actually, you know, during the pandemic, we, we have seen a lot of that. 
you know, the, for, for the insurance companies, the, the number one worry is uh, fraudulent claims, right? And, and the, uh, based on uh, blockchain technologies, uh, actually during the pandemic, some, some, some players have created a system uh, for, uh, for, the, for, for, for the patients, you know, to, 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 to submit their claims efficiently uh, and also uh, uh, from the company's perspective, you know, better prevent fraudulent claims. Yeah, so, so that's, that's one. And another another uh, uh, application, you know, interestingly, is uh, is related related to um, like philanthropy, you know, philanthropy, uh, donations, you know, relating to you know, let, let's say healthcare, right? Let's say so someone some someone wanted to ask for public help, you know, uh, let's say a serious patient. You know, a, a, a serious patient and the, the the families of the patient, you know, wants to seek public help. You know, the, in, in China, the, the, there are donation platforms for 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 the public to like GoFundMe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's almost like a crowdfunding, right? And, and uh, you know, for for that again, right? You 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 want to avoid fraudulent situations, uh, or you want to better better track. You know the the or, or the or the or the money related information, right? And and the blockchain has been uh, an important technology for for those developments. So Winston, you've been right um, in the crossfire between hmm. the U.S. technology world, the Chinese te- technology world. When we get to twenty thirty, yes, who has is it a, a, the correct question to ask? Who's won the war? What does the world look like? when we get to 2030 in the next decade? How do you, wow. it's a big question, but exactly. is it possible to envision? Yes, you know? no, mm-hmm. I, I think you know, the, the quick answer is we will definitely get into a data first, data first society. And, and for that, blockchain will be a, a major, if not the most important uh, digital infrastructure for the data intensive society. Yeah. Uh, you know, a few years ago, we talked about mobile first, right? Everything, right. you know, going from the mobile phone. But now it's, it's data first. It's data first because, you know, that's the source of uh, AI. You know, that's the source of uh, big data analytics and also, you know, lots of uh, uh, personal data privacy issues, right? So, so these days, everything is around data. You know, I, in 10 years, 2030, uh, it will be definitely a data first society. Um, and it will drive the geo, geopolitical tensions and potentially, you know, cross-border collaborations uh, between different countries. Um, and, 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 and for dealing with such, amount, such a big amount of data, uh, blockchain will, will, will be the fundamental tech infrastructure for us to, uh, to store the, the, the data, manage the data, and also to protect the privacy of the data. If you were to advise President Biden yes. on U.S. innovation policy, what yes. would you tell him? I would say be, be more offensive, right? Uh, focus on the competition, focus on U.S. own innovation, such that the competition with China will lead to more innovation. Uh, you know, 
By contrast, during the Trump administration, it was mostly about defensive, right? Sanction Chinese tech companies, you know, block China investments in U.S. tech companies, uh, right? And and then uh, uh, try to uh, uh, divest earlier uh, uh, done deals like TikTok. You know, uh, th- those things are just dis- destruct- destructive. Instead, you know, I think the U.S. right now is focusing on its own innovation. And I think, you know, uh, the, the competition with China will actually lead to more constructive result, like more innovation. So yeah. your advice is be aggressive, get in the game, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, Winston, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. I know I could keep asking questions, <laughs> <laughs> but how can our audience follow you? Are you on Twitter? Do you have a new yes. book coming out? I mean, definitely they can... Uh, you know, I've told everybody that The Digital War is a book that they should read. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, please find my books on Amazon, right? I have like seven books. Uh, and also, you know, I, I uh, actively publish, uh, publish my uh, new thoughts, comments in the media uh, on my LinkedIn page as well as Twitter. So please find me there and we can have more dialogue. Wonderful. Thank you, Winston, so much. Okay, for joining us today. See yeah. you hopefully in person someday okay. soon. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Lily. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.